0: Matthew 22, would you join me over there, Matthew 22, and as you're flipping there, I like it when the Lord lets me see something in a song that I haven't seen before. I'm going to borrow this just for a second. Um, and I'd heard this song before, the uh, "Oh, praise the name. Oh praise the name of the Lord our God." So you're in Matthew 22, so go ahead and turn there and um, In lieu of Erica's comments, I'll not need to preach the third point today, so that'll be, and if you believe that, I've got some oceanfront property in Arizona to sell you as well, Uh, but basically, it was our third point today, anyway, so this line struck me, and uh, then on the third day, then on the third, at break of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again, O trampled death. Where is your sting? Oh, trampled death, where is your sting? And then it was this line The angels roar for Christ the King. Picture that. I like sports. And I've been watching this thing called the Ryder Cup. And these guys will make these putts in golf, and you'll see these thousands and thousands of people. And as the thing is rolling rolling, you feel the anticipation, but man, when that pup drops in the hole, it's like all at one time. Ah! Third morning. I think it was Peter says that the angels desired to look into what the prophets are writing. What what are they writing? See, this whole thing that Jesus did while on earth was totally confusing to the angels. They didn't know the whole plan. They've got to be wondering what what in the world? Why is he leaving? Going to go there? Gonna be one of them? Why? Why is he letting them do that to them? Send us. Nope. You just hold off. There's a plan in action. And and then on the third day, maybe there was a rumble. I don't know. There probably was. We know there was an earthquake. And they're just watching this. And Jesus opens his eyes. And they erupt. The angels. And we're going to do that one day. That was... That was for me this morning. Y'all didn't get squat out of that. That's fine. Man, that was, I was like, man, I could picture. They just, they erupted. Unlike anything that's ever been on earth. Then they started to see what God was doing. Matthew 22. In a moment, we'll read the first 14 verses. And, ah, good. Thank you. Also, we know that some Pharisees, not all the Pharisees were on the Sanhedrin, but some Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, were on the Sanhedrin as well. So these people come and they challenge Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? We don't know exactly fully what they meant, probably saying, who do you think you are riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Who do you think you are driving those people out? Who do you think you are letting all these people praise you as though you're the son of David, shouting Hosanna to you? Why are you letting that happen? And then who do you think you are teaching in the temple? We've not approved this. Do you remember how Jesus responded? He responded by saying, I'm going to ask you a question about John the Baptist. You answer my question. I'll answer yours. I can't go into all that, all that message. They refused to answer John the Baptist's question. Jesus then tells three parables. So parable number one was about two sons. A man had two sons. Can't go into it right now. The other One after that was the one before this text, and it was the parable of the wicked tenants, a landowner. So notice these parables of Jesus portray God as a father, and he has two sons. And then God is this landowner who builds a vineyard, puts a fence around it, a wine press in it, a tower over it. He loves this. The vineyard we know represents Israel. He hands the vineyard over to be cared for by some hired tenants who are responsible to him. And here I am going and teaching this parable. I'm not supposed to. It's the parable of the wicked tenants. You just have to go back and hear it. And that had to do with Israel's leaders were the ones who were the caregivers of Israel. And when God wanted fruit from the vineyard and sent his servants, the prophets, to call for the fruit, they mistreated and even killed the servants. And so God... This landowner sends his own son. They end up killing his son. And Jesus even asked these people that he's telling this parable to, what do you think the landowner is going to do to those hired tenants after they've done what they've done? And they say, well, he will kill them. He will put them to death in a very painful, miserable way. And then he will give the vineyard over to someone who will actually give him the fruit that he deserves. And so he's told now two parables. With that in mind, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 of chapter 22. We have a third parable. Excuse me. All right, verse 1. Verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Third one. Saying, so you ready? You ready to get into a parable? This is figurative language. I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys. What we're about to read, as far as the time period that it covers is going to go back 1,500 years before they're talking about here. When Jesus, This is 2,000 years ago. Jesus is talking in the temple to the chief priests, elders, and scribes of the Pharisees, his enemies. They're opposing him. And now, since you started this confrontation back in chapter 21, verse 23, I'm going to go ahead and unload on you what you need to hear. And each one of these parables is pointed directly at them. And now we're getting another parable in addition, verse 1. Again, Jesus spoke to them in, the, in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven... May be compared to a king. So we had a father with two sons. We had a landowner over a vineyard. Now he says, "The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king." As we go through this, I want you to if some of you'll be able to do this, you'll be able to hear the story and already make connections of what stands for what. If you cannot do both, then just lock into the story itself. Just let the story, and then we'll unpack what everything represents. Verse two again, "The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. There's a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. There's a king who has a son. The son's getting married, and the king wants to throw this great feast. Verse 3, the king sent his servants, watch the wording, sent his servants to call those who were invited. Notice, they're not going to invite people. That's not what they're doing. He, the king sends his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. So off they go, but they would not come. So the people who had been invited do not come. Servants are sent. Verse four again, very patiently, this king sent other servants, other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited. Again, they're going to the invited. Verse four again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited. See, so here's here's your message to them. Go tell them this. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. I want you to remember that phrase. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off. Come to the wedding. Everything's ready. Remember, you've been invited. Come. Everything's ready. They paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest, so there's, most did that reaction, these that were invited. But some of the others invited are in verse 6. While the rest seized his servants. Servants minding what their Lord had told them to do, their king. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. So now what's going to happen? They've already rejected the offer. He sends another wave of servants. And now they've shamefully treated them, seized them, and killed them. Now what will happen? Well, verse 7 is exactly right. The king was angry. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those. Jesus is telling this parable. The king is angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, and right now, if you're like me, you're thinking, Hey, time out. I thought, The servants were killed. Yeah, but this is the king. He has more servants. He raises up more servants. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. You catch it? It's still ready. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. The wedding feast is ready. Those invited were not worthy. Had enough of that. So he's going to change course. Verse 9. This wave of servants, he tells them, go therefore to the main roads. And invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Go out to the main roads, and invite as many as you find. It's ready. They're not coming. They're not worthy. It's still going to go on. It still will be filled. You go to the main roads, and invite as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Both bad and good. And so the wedding hall was filled with guests. And there's Jesus' parable, except it's not quite over. There is this next section. But when the king came in to look at the guest, right? So the wedding hall, the feast, which represents the kingdom. Jesus already told us that. Kingdom of heaven is like, like this king who's putting on a feast. So the feast is like the kingdom. And now here it comes. It's time for the feast. It's almost about to begin. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. That's a key thought. He was speechless. He doesn't say, I didn't have, I, I, I didn't have access to a wedding garment. He doesn't say anything. He's speechless. In verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, You can kind of read between the lines here if you know what we're talking about, what time. Remember I said we're talking about from 1,500 years before Christ all the way, really, to the end of time. Really, this parable is covering 1,500 years before Christ, the time of Christ, the very near future for them, 40-year future for them, the distant future for this time period, and even to the end of time, and even at the judgment in verse 13, this represents that. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him, the one who did not have the wedding garment, bind him hand and foot. Remember, it's time for the feast. This one's in there mingling among the people at the feast, but he doesn't have a wedding garment. And the king says, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Much sorrow, much self-blothing. And then Jesus tacks on this, frankly, controversial verse. Jesus says... For many are called, but few are chosen. For many are called, few are chosen. All right, so you can already see that we've kind of got our work cut out for us today. Would you notice three things? Number one, this is kind of repeating what the other two parables, this is Jesus is really driving this home. Number one, Israel has refused God's offer. Israel has refused God's offer. Now, on your handout, I didn't have enough room there. So to put all the things like we've done on the pr- two previous parables, I would have like 10 or 11 things, bullet points. I don't have room for that, so I'm going to narrow it down. But I want you guys to help me on the first couple because it's pretty obvious. Um, we're going to take an overview. Let's, let's take a quick overview. And by doing so, we're going to get the cliff notes. We're going to get the basic idea of this parable. And then we'll be able to dive into its parts a little bit further. So number one, there's this king. And he's putting on this feast for his son's wedding. The king represents who? God. The son who's getting married represents who? Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. So the king represents God. The son represents Jesus who is the Son of God. So now we'll start actually taking a few notes. The servants, these servants who are sent out in verse 3, verse 4, verse 8, 9, and 10, who do they represent? These servants, all I can just put it as, the best I can understand this parable, they represent the various spokesmen of God. They represent God's various spokesmen. If you'll bear with me and be patient for just a moment, I want to appeal that within this, and some would probably be angry with me and say, Jeff, you shouldn't be reading so much into it. Leave it generic. I think there are actually three specific waves of spokesmen who are being talked about in the passage. So look again at verse number 3. Again, we're going to take a quick overview. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Can I propose to you that that initial wave of people is the... Technically, the Old Testament prophets who are inviting a group of people to this kingdom of God that is represented in the story by a feast. You're invited. But now as we really narrow it down, we could say not just generically the Old Testament prophets. Which specific Old Testament prophet do you think I'm thinking of? We could say that, but like I'm talking about in the day of Christ. This one is not just the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. This one is saying it's time for the feast. This is John the Baptist, I believe. In fact, Jesus Himself is also a prophet, so he's dual roles here. John the Baptist and Jesus it seems are represented by verse number three. Now look at verse number four. But they would not come. They wouldn't come to the feast. Again, he sent other servants saying, "Tell those who are invited, see if I prepared everything's ready. Come." What, what is this second wave of? spokesman for God. Could I offer you that this is the New Testament apostles and the early Christians, the early Christians are coming back to this same group again saying it's not too late, come to the feast. You've been invited, take advantage of it, come while there is time. So again, I think that is the New Testament apostle. That's what we're going to find in the book of Acts and so forth. Particularly, we could even say with Stephen. We would include Stephen in that second wave. So then what is going on way down in verse number 8? Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads. I want to propose to you that that wave of servants and spokesmen for God represents, hear it, all evangelistic Christians in the church age. Verse three, John the Baptist and Jesus. Verse four, the apostles and the early Christians, including Stephen. Verse eight, nine, and ten, us. And that's where we're going to come into the story. Take notes quickly. Who do you think the king's troops are? Anybody want to offer that? Again, some would say, Jeff, you're reading too much, but to me it seemed fairly obvious after I read it a couple of times. These king's troops. looks at verse seven, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Could I propose to you that the king's troops are none other than the Roman army? And that takes us down to your next note. Who are these bad and good? So this third wave of servants go out and they start inviting people and they're told to go out to as many as you shall find. And all of a sudden the wedding hall is filled with both bad and good. The bad and good, we could say, are the Jew and Gentile church combined. The morally bad, the morally good, who were brought into the church and forgiven of their sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. So that leaves us three final thoughts in our overview. who. And what does he represent? Is this man who does not have the wedding garment in verse 11? Who is he? Could I propose that the man with no wedding garment represents none other than religious people who lack true, genuine righteousness? They're religious. Remember, the feast is about to happen. We're using figurative language today. I know I'm not speaking straightforward all the time, so you're going to have to really... Ask the Lord to open your thinking. This book is spiritually discerned, and we're going to need the Lord to do the teaching and preaching in our hearts today. And so this man who does not have a garment, he's in there rubbing shoulders with everyone that's going to be eating at the feast, but he doesn't truly belong. He's very religious, we could say. Acts like he's one of the ones of God's people and God's kingdom, but he doesn't truly belong. And so now that takes us down to verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many called, few chosen. Who are the many who are called? Well, right off the bat, I know some of you read your Bible a lot and you've been studying Scripture for years and years and you're saying, Jeff, the called, who are the called? Can I just quickly, Paul is going to use the word called in a different way than what Jesus is using it here. When Paul uses the word called, he's talking, he's using that word in the way that Jesus is talking about at the end of verse 14. Jesus is talking about, watch it, a general call that goes out to the many. So who are the many? Write this thought down. The called are those who hear the gospel. The called, in verse 14, for many are called. Who's the many? Those who hear the gospel. Now, catch what I'm about to say. In the gospel, there is the message that all who trust in Jesus, you're going to hear this three or four times today, all who trust in Jesus will be forgiven of their sins. That is part of, now, this is key. Even if the person who proclaims that to someone else, this person tells this person that, all they've done is say, guess what? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone who confesses their sins, acknowledges their sins before God and believes that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to pay for their sins, everyone who does that gets their sins forgiven and goes to heaven. Even though this person may not invite this person, they may not have the courage to cross that line and say, will you do that today? Would you confess your sins and receive the Lord's forgiveness? Though they may not actually verbalize it and call this person personally, this person has now heard the gospel. They are of the many who are the called because they've already heard. Everyone who does it is forgiven. Whether that human individual calls them to do it or not, they have now heard the call of God. No excuses. So then who are the many? Well, very simply, the chosen, I'm sorry, who are the few? The few are the chosen who are those who believe the gospel. There are those who believe. The many are those who hear the gospel. The few are those who believe the gospel. And we'll have more to say at the end. Look at verse two. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now just just take that story as it is. RC Sproul writes the following. He says the king wants to honor his son on the occasion of his wedding by a feast. By means of a feast to end all feasts. Did you catch it? This king wants to honor his son by means, at the occasion of his wedding, by means of a feast to end all feasts. Guys, what we're talking about is the biggest thing that would have happened in these people's lives. We're not talking about an invitation to sit at the the front row or at the front table at the Oscars or the Emmys or some loser thing like that, right? That happens every year. Okay, this isn't box seats at the Super Bowl. This isn't Final Four tickets. This is none. Of, this isn't backstage pass to your favorite band. That's always happened. This is a one-time event being put on by the King, and and the Lord is Jesus is telling us that's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, if these people he's talking to are paying attention, Jesus has just unloaded and reiterated some major doctrine that they resist. They kind of know it but they've never delved into it. What Jesus has just, this is key, he says, the same God that you claim to worship, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Jehovah, that God has a son and he's getting married to a bride and that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. The father is gonna put on this big party, this big feast to honor his son's marriage to his bride. No, we're not going to get lost in all the lines that are crossing. Like, wait, Jeff, I thought we are the bride. Are we the attendees? Okay, that's another analogy. We're staying in this parable. Yes, we are the bride, by the way. But here we're talking about being invited to this great feast that is put on by the Father. You don't want to miss this. It's the highest of honors. And the Lord has just told his enemies, there is a God, the same God you serve. And he has a son, and his son is getting married to a bride. So now look at verse 3, quickly. And he sent his servants to call those who, I note the wording, those who were invited to the wedding feast. I pointed it out upon our first reading. Those who were invited does not mean these servants are going out knocking. Hey, good afternoon. Listen, I'm from the king's office. Oh, yeah, I can tell you. That's great. The king's throwing a feast and you're invited. I'm invited. That's not what's happening. What he's doing, what these servants are doing, are going to people who have already previously been invited and indicated that they will come to the feast. In other words, this initial invitation took place 1,500 years before that, 2,000 years before that, really, with with Abraham. And then what they've done is, is this group of people has taken this attitude. We're invited to be... In a relationship and in the palace with the great king and to be part of this feast, of course we're going to be part of that. Will you accept the invitation? Their answer has been, yes, thank you. That's awesome. Count us in. Just let us know when it's time and we will be ready and we will take part in this great feast. But unfortunately, as verse 3 says, but they would not come. Barclay writes it this way. We've already told you who this group is. He spells it out more clearly. The guests who had been invited, and remember, they've already been invited, and the implication is yes, we're going to come. Just let us know when it's time. The guests who had been invited and who, when the time came, refused to come stand for the Jews. Ages ago, they had been invited by God to be his chosen people. Yet when God's Son came into the world and they were invited to follow him and to accept him, they contemptuously refused the invitation. So they've said, We're going to come. Yes, we're, you, you've invited us to be your special people. You didn't have to do that. We've accepted that. And now here comes John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes and says, The kingdom is here. And the kingdom is being offered to the nation of Israel. And they reject it and refuse it. What will the father do? What will the king do? The king in his patience and grace extends a second wave, which is represented by verse number four. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my ox and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready, come to the feast. Do you see what he's done? The patience of the king. So if the first servants represent John the Baptist and Jesus. Then the second wave is after the death of Christ. What does the Lord do? He sends the apostles. And again, those early prophets and teachers and preachers, including Stephen, the first deacon, There in the early church. I wish we had time. I don't. If we had time, we would pause and we would go to Acts chapter number 2. And you would see that the apostles go out into the temple and preach another second offer to the Jewish nation. Then we would go to chapter number 3, and you would see that Peter and John heal a lame man on their way into the temple. And by healing the lame man, a huge crowd gathers up, and Peter and John again offer the kingdom. You say, well, Jeff, praise the Lord, 3,000 got saved at the, on the day of Pentecost that Peter and the apostles preaching. True. But 3,000 in the tens and tens and tens and may, perhaps a couple hundred thousands of Jews that were in Jerusalem is a small drop in a bucket. It was rejected by and large, received by a small group, rejected on the whole. So he sends this other wave Acts chapter number 2, Pentecost. Acts chapter number 3, this crowd that is risen by this miracle. And Peter and John preached to them and some get saved. Acts chapter number four, the Sanhedrin doesn't like that Peter and John are down there preaching that. And so they arrest them and bring them into the Sanhedrin. And now here sits the 71 highest-ranking people in Israel. And Peter and John preach the gospel to them. And in essence, are offering the kingdom again to them. Reject it again. Chapter number five, all of the apostles are put before the Sanhedrin. Again, present the gospel. Exactly what verse 4 and 5 are talking about. They reject it again. Chapter number seven, Stephen gives a defense and offers the kingdom again, but they reject it again over and over. Over, you see what is happening with the leadership of Israel. We could take it even all the way to chapter 13 of the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey in a synagogue to, a, to the Jews, they present the gospel again as Paul always did when he was on the missionary journey. Over and over and over. Now look at verse 5 and 6. Two responses. When this second wave of people, a second offer by God But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. I want to start, take a quick note. What happened with the second response? Write this down. The Jewish leaders, once this was, again, presented to them, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 7... And even later on in Acts 13, to some synagogue leaders. What do the Jewish leaders do? They oppose God's spokesman, they kill God's spokesman. Why? Why? For two reasons. All these people are doing is obeying God. God, the king, has told his servants, his spokesmen, go re-offer the kingdom to the Jews again. They go and re-offer it. And then what do the, the Jewish leadership? They oppose them, persecute them, mistreat them, and kill them for just obeying what the Lord has told them to do. And then also for calling the people. All they've done is like, come to the feast. They had the courage to tell the Jewish leaders, you were wrong when you rejected Jesus, you were wrong when you killed Jesus, but God is patient and he's still reaching out to you. Can I propose verse 4 where it says, again, he sent other servants saying, I think verse 4, which follows the first wave of verse 3, they reject John the Baptist, they reject Jesus. Here come the apostles. It's, it's, It's God's way of saying, hey, listen, you're late. The feast is ready. The feast is ready. You're late, but God is still patient. God is still waiting. He'll still let you get in. But then they killed those who shared that message just for obeying God. But now look back quickly at verse 5. The nation as a whole, so I'm going to propose that verse 6 is Israelite leadership, seizing his servants, treating them shamefully, killing them. But sadly, the nation as a whole was hardly any better. In verse 5, they paid no attention. Here comes the second offer. You killed your Messiah, but God is patient. Here's the offer again. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business. Hey, guys, listen. No nation in the history of the world has ever seen anything, anything like the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Never. We've never had anything like that one nation has had has had that happen where the son of god i mean just going around teaching things no one's ever heard preaching with authority that no one's ever seen or heard and then raising the dead and casting out demons and power over storms and natural things and then healing every disease not one time nobody's ever seen so here's i read verse 5 And after Jesus dies and is resurrected and ascended and his people are going around saying, we've seen him and the tomb is actually empty. Here's my question. How can you guys seriously go about your normal lives as though nothing has ever happened? How can you do that? But that's exactly what the Jewish nation has done. They paid no attention, went off one to his farm, another to his business. And so to this day, they're worried more about these things than this life of the Son of God who's come to the land of Israel 2,000 years ago. Sadly, before I hit my second thought this morning, most people who hear the gospel, even today, are like the Jews in verse 5. J.C. Ryle, not an exact quote yet, he writes that many people hear the gospel year after year, Sunday after Sunday. But he writes the following. When they hear the gospel, quote, they feel no special need of the gospel. They see no special beauty in it. They do Now catch this. Here's the average person. He says, They do not perhaps hate it or oppose it or scoff at it, but they do not receive it into their hearts. Year after year, hear the gospel. Sunday after Sunday, I'm telling you, hell is filled with people who heard the gospel. I mean, the pure gospel over and over and over and over. Why not? He writes again. He says, they do not perhaps hate it or oppose it or scoff at it, but they do not receive it into their hearts. Why? Here's why. Verse 5 gives us the answer. He writes, they like other things far better. They like other things far better. Like what, Jeff? It's in the text. Ryle writes, their money, their land, their businesses, and their pleasures are all far more interesting subjects to them than their soul's. Hear the gospel over and over and over, and it just never grabs them. It never takes hold. No beauty in it. No drawing toward it. Just being informed. Why? How can that happen? They love these other things far more than the gospel. And so they just, in essence, turn out to be like verse 5. They paid no attention. Went off. One to his farm, one to his business. Think about that. Now, just go into the story of a king and these people who lived... Under his kingship and in his kingdom, and they're invited into the palace. Are you? Uh, here's what I want to ask him that hey, time out, buddy. Hey, listen. Do you know that you've just been invited by the king to the palace, and it's going to be decked out like it has never been before, and you're invited to that, and you're going to reject that to go to the office another day? To go to your farm again another day? Are you? And as foolish as that is, if you could put yourself in that, say, that, those people are stupid. That's what people do all the time when they hear the gospel. It's like, that sounds like something I should be interested in, but I'm not really because this has captured my attention, and it is something of the earth. Before I do the second point, let me leave you with this thought from the first. Ready? God does not have to offer his kingdom to anyone. That's a key thought. He doesn't have to offer his kingdom to anyone. But if you refuse, there is a limit to the patience of God, and you will be removed and replaced by someone else. Paul teaches us that in Romans 11 as well. Number two this morning. This is verses 7 to 10. Israel's refusal leads to God's expansion. And I had to shorten that. The expansion of God's offer. Israel's refusal of God's offer, we could say, leads to the expansion of God's offer to other people. And we find this in verses 7 to Through 10. First, look if you would, verse 7. Let's touch that quick. We're not going to dig deep here. Verse number 7 the king was angry. Remember, they shamefully mistreated his servants and killed them that were sent on the second wave. I believe Jesus is being totally prophetic. I read a few people are like, well, we're reading too much if we think Jesus knew about this event that was going to come. And I'm thinking, are you serious? Of course Jesus knows about this event. To me, it looks pretty obvious, pretty plain. The first time I read this, like, oh, I know what verse seven's talking about. Look at it again. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Do you remember the second son? Remember the parable? There's this father who has two sons, tells the first son, son, go work in the vineyard today. The son says, I will not. But that son repents, changes his mind, and actually goes and works in the, in the vineyard. But the second son, son, go work in the vineyard today. That son says, sir, I will. I go. Yes, sir, be glad to do it. Get right on it. But he doesn't actually do it. The point is the same. The Lord, just as he told them with the parable of the second son, is saying, hey, you Jewish leaders in the nation of Israel, here's what you've done. Just like that second son lied to his father, disobeyed his father, and dishonored his father in the same way you have done that with God. And now he's saying it the same point again Israel, the nation of Israel, and the Jewish leadership. By saying, when you're invited to the kingdom of God, invited to this great feast, and God now sends his servant saying, It's time, the feast is ready, and you don't come. You are disobeying the command of the king to come. You're dishonoring the king's invitation, and you have lied to the king because you told him you were his people and you will come when the, when the feast is ready. You've dishonored, disobeyed, and you've lied. Same point twice. So, what's God going to do about it? God's angry. How angry? Remember that God has already shown the nation of Israel in the Old Testament that he will absolutely use another nation more wicked than Israel to punish his people. God will use another people, even more wicked than his people, to punish because you're my people. And so God did that in verse 7. Verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Can I propose to you that verse 7 is talking about God allowing the Romans to destroy the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Why? Two basic reasons. One is theological. He allows the Romans to come in. Again, they, they stirred up trouble, the Jewish nation did. Finally, Rome had, had enough. On the human level, that's what was going on. On the divine level, this is a, that what happened in A.D. 70 was a fulfillment of verse number 7. By the way... That changed everything in the land of Israel from A.D. 70 until about 1948. Just shook it all up. You say, what happened in A.D. 70? The Roman general Titus brought his army and killed over 1.1 million Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Destroyed the city. The temple is destroyed. Why did God do this? Number one, obviously to show the Jews who kept on offering animal sacrifices, your animal sacrifices are no longer sufficient. My son died on a cross 40 years ago to pay for all sin. Why are you still offering animal sacrifices? And so God has allowed the temple to be destroyed. There are no animal sacrifices going on in the land of Israel anymore. God put a stop to it. But also because Israel had the audacity when approached by God's spokesman to act like their murdering of his son was no big deal. And then to mistreat his church and persecute them. And so God allowed that to happen to the nation of Israel. Unfortunately, many other Gentile nations have looked at what happened in AD 70 as though that's a license for them to continue to persecute the Jewish nation. That's not your place. Those are God's people. God used Rome to do that then. Later on, God judged Rome for what Rome did against Israel. Any nation who opposes the the nation of Israel, you're going to pay a price. So we never need to think, okay, they're the ones who put Jesus to death, and they don't think anything's wrong with it. We need to go. No, that is not our place. That's God's business. Those are His people. And now verse 8. Remember the thought. Israel's refusal leads to God's expansion. Look at verse 8. So He sends His troops, destroys Those murders and burns their city. Then he said to his servants, Wait, I thought the servants were dead. Nope. He raises up a whole other group of servants. And watch what, because this is us. You say, Jeff, are we in this anywhere? Oh, absolutely. This is us. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. Did you catch it? Hey, servants, the wedding feast is still ready. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Those were not worthy. So here's what I want you to do. You go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast. This is a change. You go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast. Who Who can we invite and how many? As many as you find. What? Who can we invite? As many as you find. How many can we invite to the feast? Like the feast equals the kingdom of God, a right relationship with God, eternal life, heaven. Like, How many can we invite to this thing? As many as you shall find. What kind of people can we invite? As many as you shall find. Any more questions? OK, no, it sounds like we can invite anybody, as many as we find, as many as you find. Verse number eight, verse nine again, "Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find." And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. And that we know, we can recognize that's still futuristic, because this is still taking place. So let's put it together. 4,000 years ago and 3,500 years ago until 2,000 years ago, there was a nation on earth called Israel that was offered an exclusive relationship with the one true God. Had you lived back then you say, I want a relationship with the one true God, then you would need to come to God on the basis in terms of what he had shown, specially shown that group of people. And so Gentiles, had we lived in and we want to serve the one true God, Yahweh, Jehovah, then we would have become Jewish proselytes and our males would be circumcised and we would confess our sins and our unworthiness and we would be baptized and we would start living by the Old Testament law, by faith right? So then we could become, because there was this exclusive offer. But now, here we come to the New Testament, and Jesus is hinting, in essence, basically saying already in verse 9 and 10, my new generation of people, the new change of plan is, it's no longer going to be just this one nation. You go out and tell all the peoples to come have a relationship with the Lord. The parameters have been expanded. The offer is to as many as you shall find, whether good or bad. Can I point your attention one more time to verse 8? Look at one more time, verse 8. He said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. It's ready. It was ready in verse 3. It was ready in verse 4. It is still ready in verse 8. Jeff, what's your point? The wedding feast represents the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. So, with that as the basis, what has to happen? For the kingdom of God. Many of you are thinking, man, I can't wait. Things are so bad, so terrible. I've never been at any point in my whole life like it's been the last two or three years. We just want the kingdom of God. When is it going to come? I'm going to tell you when it's going to come. When the wedding hall is full of receptive guests, then the kingdom will come. Right now, the feast is ready. The only thing that is holding up the beginning of the final consummation of the kingdom of God is that the wedding hall must be filled with receptive guests. And so that's where we come in. We are to be going and inviting. Invite. I don't know why it is we get so shy and so timid and backward about offering the gospel when all we're offering is, hey, do you want eternal life for free? Do you want a relationship with the king of all the kings? Do you want to live with God in heaven forever? It's free we are to be offering the kingdom. To who? As many as you shall find. To how many? As many as you shall find. We are to take the gospel to the roads, to the broad roads, beyond this very exclusive initial covenant agreement with the nation of Israel. We are now to take it to the nations. That's our job. That's part of the song that was in here. I am here. I'm alive to do this and to tell that it's by the blood of Christ. Watch. When we go, notice verse 9, 10 says, Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. When we go, we are not to target only the morally good. Don't just look like they're a good person. They'd probably make a great Christian. They just need to get saved is the only thing left for them. I'm going to go talk to them. They seem nice. Don't only target the morally good. Nor should we only target the morally bad. Ah, oh, they definitely need saved. I can tell that from here. And you go, and they really need to get saved. Don't just target the, watch, don't just target the wealthy. Target the wealthy. Boy, look what they could do if they were to get into the kingdom. Nor should we only target the poor. In fact, I'm going to tell you, of those four, I just said the morally good, the morally bad, the wealthy, the poor. Out of those, there's two groups that are usually the most fruitful and most responsive. I'm going to propose it's the morally bad and the poor are usually more responsible. But we're wrong when we only focus on one type of person. Just go tell everybody. Go offer to everybody. As many as you shall find, whether good or bad. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is called evangelism. Before we hit our third point, I want to quickly give you what Mark Dever wrote. And I shared this couple of... Years ago on a Wednesday night, and I remember, I won't say who it was. I remember as I shared the note I'm about to give you, that in, in our fellowship hall on a Wednesday night, uh, somebody heard me say this, and I saw them go, no, 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 I don't buy that. So I'll repeat it again, because this is actually correct. You ready? They're not here this morning, by the way. Dever writes the following. Do you understand? I'm talking about our place. You say, Jeff, I'm saved. Why are you here? You're here to go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. That's your main one of your main things. Grow in your relationship with the Lord. Worship the Lord. Definitely do that. But part of that has to be that we're taking this message that is kind of like a king throwing a feast where his servants are now not just going and invited those who uh, calling those who were previously invited. The servants now have freedom to go invite anyone they want to to the wedding feast. That's what we're like. We get to do that. We have permission. Dever writes the following. Evangelism is simply telling the good news. Let me say that again. Evangelism is simply telling the good news. It does not include making sure that the other person responds to it correctly. That's not our job to make sure the other person responds correctly to the message of the gospel. Evangelism is just telling the good news. Not on your handout. He writes the following. He says the fruit of evangelism, that's when someone gets saved. The fruit of evangelism comes from God. God does that. So again, evangelism itself is simply just telling the good news. Does not include making sure they get saved. Debra then quotes John R.W. Stott. Stott writes the following. I'm piecing together a quote here. So catch it, and then we'll go to our third and last point. You ready? Stott writes, so somebody may need to hear this because you may be thinking, I tried it, Jeff, and it didn't work for me. I tried to be evangelistic. Then hear what Stott writes. He says, To evangelize does not mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news, irrespective of the results. He later writes, to evangelize is to... say, Jeff, remind me, what is evangelism? What is this verse 9 and 10 talking about? He writes, to evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus died for our sins and was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, and that as the reigning Lord, He now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. That's the gospel. That is evangelism. I just evangelized. I literally just evangelized. So hear it one more time. To evangelize is to spread the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, and that as the reigning Lord, He now offers the forgiveness of sins and the liberating gift of the Spirit to all who repent and believe. That's the gospel. It's to tell it. We can't make anyone repent and believe. We can tell them, though, if you will repent and believe, then you will receive forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and have a relationship with Him. And I like to go further than that. I like to say, would you do it? Will you do that? Have you done that? If not, do it now. Will you repent? Will you change your mind about your sins that they're far worse than you thought? Will you change your mind about Jesus that yes, his death on the cross is enough to pay for all the sins that you could ever commit? Will you believe that? Will you believe? Will you change your mind that, God, I don't know that he will forgive me? No, God says he will forgive me, and I'm going to believe it. I want to ask you, will you do that if you haven't done that? That is to evangelize. Number three. And this will be our shortest point of the three. God requires righteousness. God requires righteousness. So notice again verse 11. So the wedding hall is filled with guests. Praise the Lord. It's the end of time, is the picture. The feast has not officially started. It's about to start. But verse 11 says, When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Did you catch it? He'd he'd stick out. like Everybody's got a wedding garment except this person. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. he said to him, Friend, how would you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He was speechless. So if you were to read that three or four times, you'd probably do what I did. You'd find that kind of confusing, right? My thought went like this. Okay. The servants were given permission to go share the offer and the invitation to the feast to as many as they shall find. They obviously found this man. He's at the feast. What's the problem? And then I think as we look, I think the key is the word speechless, What are you doing here? Who do you think you are? How did you get in here without... Now, the feast hasn't started, but he's rubbing shoulders with everyone that is there. How did you get in here? And he's speechless. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, I was up on the main road and this person came and got me and I did the best I could. I came straight here. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I didn't have time to run home. My wedding garments are at home. I didn't have time to swing by there. I thought we were supposed to come straight. So what's going on? What's the problem? What is Jesus' point? So hear it carefully. Think of just the parable first. Attendance to the feast was free. But all must have the proper attire. It's free. But you have to be wearing the proper attire. You have to have on a wedding garment to get into the feast. This man doesn't. Why? Why? So we ask ourselves this question, hold on, why is it that of all the people who were out on the main roads, he's the only one who does not have a wedding garment? And so I'll propose that he was the only one from the streets without a wedding garment shows not that they all went home, not that they're all fine in what they were wearing, but that when everyone came to the feast, wedding garments were being offered to everyone. That's the only conclusion we can come to. So here comes all these people are coming to the banquet hall, and wedding garments are being supplied, but somehow this person does not have a wedding garment. And when asked why he doesn't, he doesn't have anything to say. He doesn't defend by saying, I didn't have an opportunity. They all had access, and I didn't. What this means is he was offered a wedding garment and rejected it. Somewhere in his thinking, he's thinking, I think pretty much what I've got on ought to work. This will do just fine. This is fine enough. Maybe he was a highfalutin businessman. This, this is a good good enough wedding garment. I don't need that. And so he goes on in, and everyone else has received the wedding garment. So what is Jesus' point? Now move from that parable, and let's move to what Jesus is teaching us quickly. You ready? Jesus' point here in this man without a garment is that, here at first, heaven has a dress code. Heaven has a dress code. And we hear, at Grace you don't have a dress code, right? Heaven has a dress code. You want to go into the presence of God, you have to be dressed in something that was alluded to even earlier in Erica's comments. Say, what is the dress code? Righteousness. You must. So the dress code of heaven is righteousness. So just like it was free to get into the feast, let me reiterate it this way. To get into heaven, entrance into heaven is totally free. It is absolutely free. But entrance into heaven has to be received on God's terms. It has to be received on God's terms. It is absolutely free. You say, Jeff, we have to have righteousness. We have to be dressed in righteousness. I guess all these other people stopped sinning. This poor fellow didn't stop sinning. So they dressed themselves in their own righteousness. Bless his heart. He couldn't stop it. So he's on the outside looking in. No, no, no. Entrance into heaven is absolutely free, but you have to receive it on God's terms. And here's God's terms. Number one, first step of getting saved. Don't trust your own goodness. You have to receive it only by faith in Christ. God's word teaches salvation is only by faith in Christ. This man represents a group of people who think, no, I'm I'm pretty much, I got it covered myself. I'm going to face God one day with my own goodness, and it'll be fine. It'll be enough. And as we see, this man is cast out into the outer darkness, represented, being cast there by the attendants who represent, no doubt, the angels at the time of judgment. Let me say it again. This is the simplest. I know we say it over and over and over. Access to heaven is free. But you have to receive it on God's terms. And these are God's terms. Salvation is only by faith in Christ. Only by faith. You try to wear your own garment of righteousness, you will not make it. It is only by faith. I I, I think of it this way. Guys, if there was any other way to heaven, the New Testament would have told us. And it does not tell us there's any other way to heaven. In fact, it tells us the opposite. There is no other way to heaven but by believing in Christ. say, Jeff, where in the world is that in the Bible? Watch the screen. John chapter 14. I'm going to fly through these. I'm, I'll tell you, I'm going to be tempted to bog down. I'm not going to. John chapter number 14, verse number 6. So here's what's happening as I start bogging down. Ready? Jesus says, I'm leaving, and you guys know where I'm going. Thomas says, We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way to get there? Verse number 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way. You guys know where I'm going, and you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. He does not say, I'm a way to get there. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is extremely exclusive extremely exclusive. No one comes to... So what he's done, he's just told his disciples, I'm going to the Father and you're going to come there too when the time is right and the way to get there, you know how to get there because you know me because I'm the way to the Father. I'm going on now. You will come later. You're going to come through me because I'm the only way. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's Acts chapter 4. So if you're following along or maybe not, just watching on the screen is fine. Acts chapter number 4, I alluded to this earlier. Peter and James had healed... A lame man, 40-some years old, some of you in your 40s. This man had never walked a day in his life. He gets healed in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin arrest Peter and John for preaching in the name of Jesus at this huge crowd that starts gathering because of this. They call him into the Sanhedrin. I told you a while ago the offer is being made. I wish I had time to go into it more. They want to know, how did a couple of guys like you do something like that? By what authority has that happened? Verse number 10, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Watch it, this is key. Let it be known. He's talking to the 71 member Sanhedrin, probably looking directly at the high priest. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. In other words, you want to know how this guy is all of a sudden able to walk? It's not me and John. It's by the name and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's how. He's the healer. But verse 11 picks up further. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Can't preach all that. We did it two weeks ago. You know what Jesus is saying or what Peter is saying? He's not only the healer of this man and thousands of others. He is the one and true Messiah. And you guys are supposed to be the experts. And you should have recognized the Messiah by the prophecies of the Old Testament. But you totally missed it. And so you rejected him as the cornerstone. But the perfect cornerstone, God is the builder and has pulled him out of the throwaway pile and has made him the cornerstone of the whole building that God is building. But verse 12 is why I actually had this being read. So he's the healer. He's the Messiah. Talking about this name of Jesus. And, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's the only way. You have to do it God's way. This exclusivity... Of being saved only through Jesus is one of the reasons that we, as the servants of God, need to be urgent because we're surrounded by people who think there are many ways to God or who think they're by default on their way to heaven. Watch 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 12. It's only God's way. John writes, this is so clear, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see those two? Whoever has the Son, you say, Jeff, I have the Son. Praise the Lord. Whoever has the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son, over here, I don't have the Son of God. I don't trust. I'm going to get there another way. Nope. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's exclusive. Now, I do want you to turn 2 Corinthians. Would you flip there? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. We're thinking about this man that was without a wedding garment and he represents religious people who try to get into the feast and eternal life in the kingdom of God by their own good works thinking his own clothing will be fine. And as Erica alluded to in her comments, watch what 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He, that pronoun, he is God the Father, made him, that pronoun, him is Jesus Christ. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Wait, how does Jesus have all this sin piled upon him? He knew no sin. He's perfect. How is that possible? Well, God did it. For our sakes, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? For our sakes? Specifically why? So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what Erica was alluding to. Do you see it? Write this down. At salvation, something happens. God exchanges our filthy rags. This man thinks he has a fine enough wedding garment. God exchanges the filthy rags of our attempts at righteousness, which are not righteousness, he takes our sin and he piles it on the Lord Jesus Christ so that when he dies and pays for our sin, then we are now robed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the exchange that you hear us talking about when we talk about sharing our faith. Be sure that you tell people about the exchange. Listen, all your sins are placed on Christ and then we get his righteousness. He takes the sin, we get his There's the trade and it's approved by God. Just before we go back and hit verse 14. So you write that note, and then I want you to look at verse 14. And just before we do that, let me say it this way. Judgment day is coming, ladies and gentlemen, and all of you and I are going to stand before God. And when we do, it's going to be very evident in how people are dressed. There's going to be two groups of people. There's going to be a group of people who are dressed in their own attempts at righteousness. And it's going to be very clear those are filthy rags. And not acceptable into heaven. And then there's going to be this whole other group that is absolutely robed and draped perfectly in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's what the cross does for us. It takes away all our sin. It makes us fit to live with God forever in heaven. It's not how good we are. That's how powerful his death was. Have you ever been robed? You're going to stand before God. What are you robed in today? Have you ever received by faith the righteousness of Christ? Verse 14 is where we close. For many are called, few are chosen. For many are called, and few are chosen. I think this ties back to verse 9. Go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And then the wedding hall is filled. Unfortunately, there are some who are going to be like this man who's going to try to go before God with their own righteousness. Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Quickly, you ready? You ready? Some people's version of this chosen and called is this. God is omniscient, and he is. And so God, knowing all things, God knows that we go out and share the gospel. Anybody that will put their faith in Jesus gets their sins forgiven, receives the Holy Spirit, gets eternal life, can't lose it. So we go out and share the gospel, the good news about Christ, and make the offer. And so God is omniscient, and He can look ahead in time, and He knows who the people are that will choose Him. And so since He knows who will choose Him, God chooses them. That one's going to choose me, so I'll choose you. You're going to choose me in 1979. I'll choose you. And that's some people's version of this doctrine. That goes totally against many, many passages in the New Testament, but I'm not going to track those down. Can I just appeal to you maybe on logic? Maybe on logic alone just this morning in this text. If all that is meant that is that God knows who will choose him, and so I'll choose them, quotes, I'll choose you since I know you're going to choose me, then God is only the reactor. God is not being God. Yes, he supplied salvation, but it's all up to the person. So I would ask this question. If that's all it meant, then why even use these words? Why use, these are Bible words, chose, God chose, the chosen, elect, God elected, election. I'm not making these words up, I promise, get you a concordance, they're in the Bible. Let the Bible say what it says. So we have to ask ourselves, why is this happening? Why would God, and God knows what these words, do you know how many debates and like heated discussions and splits have happened over the words that I just said? God knew these words would do these things in our mind, and we don't like these words, and yet He still said them. That tells me God means these words. Therefore, we put this in the category of one of the great mysteries that's hidden with God. I'm almost done. Pay attention right here. The great mystery with the elect and the chosen and election is not why God chose and elected this group of people. We know why from Romans 9. And we know why from Ephesians 1. He wants to show his mercy and his grace we just sang about. God wants to show he's truly a merciful, gracious God. And the way to do that is to give people things they don't deserve so god has chosen to do that so the real mystery then is not why god it's these two things so you have this group that are in the chosen the elect election and you have those that are not so here's the questions why those specific people i get it why there's this group but why those specific people and not this group that's the mystery and here's the other mystery who are the chosen who is the chosen That's the mystery. We don't know. This, if you want to write it down, this is Jesus' point. His point here is that he wants his people to give the gospel call to all people to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where I used a term earlier. There's a general call. We just give the general call. We go out into the roads, and as many as we shall find, we tell them the gospel that I've literally stated five or six times this morning. We just go say it, share it, invite That's the general call that God uses human beings to do. But along with that, there's what the theologians call the effectual call. So there's the general call by us. But the effectual call is when Ed Yeoman is preaching in 1979. He's preaching. I hear Ed Yeoman. But God on the inside is calling me with an effectual call that drags me to Christ. That's very different. So if you're taking notes, write this down. God wants his people to call for all people to trust Jesus as Savior. Knowing this, we need to know the difference between the many who hear, the general call, the difference between them and the few who hear, the effectual call is that the chosen will trust God's promises. What I did not have room to put on there, and I want to say it verbally, the chosen will trust God's promises, John 3, 16, Romans 10.13, 1 John 1.9, we could go on and on, John 6.37. The reason that some people do believe is because of this, God quickens their dead spirit to be able to really hear the gospel, to really see it. And God gives them the gift of faith. And it is His prerogative to give that gift of faith that is a requirement to be saved, to some and not to others. And right now, some of us are hearing this going, This guy is so arrogant. It isn't me. I'm not making this up. Literally, it's there in verse 14. But we'll finish with these. Quickly, John 1. I'll be done in a moment. John 1. Look at John 1. And then we're going to finish over in Acts 13. And one final quote and we'll be done. So listen to John 1 or look at it. It might be best if you turn there. John 1.11 says, because I love the balance of these two passages. So if you're struggling with this doctrine, can I give you this, these two passages that are among several others? Several others. I had to cut them out. These two should hopefully do at least head you down the right road. John 1.11, the Bible says, he, Jesus, came to his own. So yes, he came to mankind. We didn't know him. That's verse 10. But verse 11, he came to his own, which means... The Jews. And his own people did not receive him. That's what I preached in the whole first point. His own people did not receive him. Watch verse 12. I hope you're looking at this. But to all who did receive him. The Jews rejected him. Individual Jews did receive him. But the nation as a whole has rejected their Messiah. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him. Here's the key. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become the children of God. Notice. Who gets saved? Who, gets, who becomes children of God? Who enters the kingdom? Who partakes of the feast? Who gets eternal life? Who has their sins forgiven? Many, many ways the New Testament words it. But watch at the end of verse 12. Who gets the right to become the children of God? It's in the middle. Those who receive Christ? How? By believing in his name. And all the people on one side of this doctrine I'm talking about say, now That's right. That's what I'm talking about. you got to believe. Jeff, we have to believe. And to that I say, You are right. We must believe. If you do not put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will not be saved. You have to rest in Christ and stop trying to be good enough to go to heaven. You must rest in his finished work on the cross. But verse 13 finishes, says, Who were born, these ones that believe who were born, not of blood. I'm Jewish. No, I'm not going to work. Nor the will of the flesh. I'll get saved today. Yeah." feet from the lodge that grace View's men are at in the darkness he comes knock on our door it was amazing how the lord had prepared his heart to receive the gospel and he ends up getting saved and it was just like wow it was, it was just god did all all the work can i just tell you guys we love that praise the lord for that but, Graceview, if you for a second think that is the norm and that that's what we should always wait on, you're dead wrong. Every lost person in Anderson County should be beating the doors down of a church today. They're, they're eat up with guilt. They know they're not right with God. They should come bust through that door right now and say, I'm not leaving until somebody tells me how to get right with God. That's what they should do. Rarely does it ever happen. And so, if all we do is say, man, that was great what happened with Andy. It was great what happens with Andy. But we've been told in verse 9 and 10 to go into the road and go out into the highways and the byways and invite as many as the Lord shall give you, as many as you you shall find. Go and present it to everyone. Don't just wait on them to... Andy literally was on a tee. And the Lord's like, are you boys going to swing and hit this thing or am I going to have to send an angel to do this because y'all are like dragging your feet. It took us a little while to figure out what God was doing. We love that, but we're told to go and give the gospel. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say that. Who have you shared the gospel with recently? Who have Answer that question. Who have you shared the gospel with? That's why you're here. Let's go out into the road and tell them, as many as we shall find. Can I just share something with you? You're invited. To, it's totally free. Will you come? Let's stand this morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray that, Lord, I pray that if anyone here this morning has been distracted by lands and businesses and money and pleasure, Father, I pray that you would convict them of their sins and may they grab me or another one of these men or ladies here this morning and Literally what I just said. May they say, i got to talk with somebody. I'm not right with God. I don't want to be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, you can do that. You can cause that to happen. If someone's watching online and they just need to contact us, Lord, I pray that you'll do that. But, Father, I also know that you could have saved people. Literally 45 minutes ago when we shared the gospel and pleaded with folks to get saved, you could and very well may have saved someone right there while watching. So we praise you for that. Lord, I pray for those of us that are already saved, that you have given us the righteousness of Christ for free. Number one, Lord, we wanna say thank you. God, we did nothing to be put in that category of people. We did nothing, we're unworthy. It is only by your grace, Lord, You overlooked our sin. You moved past our sin and you forgave us of our sin. We're no better than anyone else. We are literally just examples of your grace and your mercy. So Lord, those of us who are listening right now, may we right now bring you into our sphere of awareness and say, God, thank you for choosing me. Thank you for giving me faith. Thank you for letting me hear the gospel. Some of us had to hear it many times. Lord, thank you for giving us faith. Thank you for your patience. And then Lord... May we right now say, use me to share that message with someone and many people. And we'll put the results in your hands. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.